Charlie Prince was going down, holding his hands tight to his chest as Scallon dropped the shotgun and swung around, drawing his colt. He saw the men under the platform shed, three of them breaking for the station office, two going full length to the planks, one crouched, his pistol up. That one! Get him quick! Scallon aimed and squeezed the heavy revolver and the man went down. Now get the hell out! This is Genre. Every month we focus on one theme. This month it's Westerns. And this week we are finishing Westerns with 310 to Yuma by Elmore Leonard. I'm Bob. I'm Zach. I'm John. So this was a really fun story this week. Fun and very short. 310 to Yuma was originally published in Dime Western Magazine all the way back in 1953. And it did feel exactly... Like the title, it was a absolute dime western. The story is about a lawman named Paul Scallion chaperoning Jimmy Kidd to the 310 train to Yuma. Now, when Jimmy Kidd finally reaches the, the city of Yuma, that's where he will have a trial for you know the various crimes that him and his gang have done against against the good people of the West. At the time we catch up with our characters, they're waiting in a hotel room with Mr. Tempe. Mr. Tempe is a representative from Wells Fargo Bank presumably the bank that Jimmy Kidd had robbed most recently. A kid's gang is waiting outside the hotel room on the street, and they're just waiting for their opportunity to free Jimmy Kidd, probably through violence. Things go really wrong when the grieved brother of one of Kidd's victims, a guy named Bob Moon, tries to break in with a shotgun, but Paul Scallion beats him with the butt of his pistol. When the appointed time finally comes, Scallion has to take Jimmy Kidd through the streets to make it onto that train but he knows that he's going to have to reckon with that gang of bandits waiting for him with guns drawn. So this book seemed pretty different than our previous Westerns, not only in length, but just, I don't know, the general theme and scope of it. What did you guys think? It feels different, but it is a pretty similar story to True Grit. True Grit, they're trying to make sure the bad man Tom Chaney gets to the right courthouse. And this, they're just trying to make sure the bad man gets to prison. But it does feel a lot different. Yeah, it's just like the other stories in which there's always been this opposition between, you know, two characters or perhaps two groups of characters. One representing the forces of good, the other representing the forces of evil. In this case, Paul Scallon is the good law-abiding citizen who takes care of his family. Jim Kidd is the outlaw just looking out for himself. Hmm. And this is the conflict here. And like you've already said, we saw that in True Grit. We saw that in The Shooters. So all of the Westerns we've read have had this dynamic in the characters. Well, I really like how not just Jimmy Kidd, but the Kidd's gang is really set up as just absolute lowlifes by the author. We don't get very much description of them individually, but we do get this broad group description that's really nice. Quote, do what he says, Kidd said. They got you. The others, six of them were strung out in the dimness of the platform shed. Grim-faced, stubbles of beard, hat brims low, the man nearest Prince spat tobacco lazily. You could imagine a way of telling the story in which there was some element of nobility, even a kind of like wicked nobility, kind of like a law unto themselves with the gang. But these guys are just absolute lowlifes. You know, they're not, they're not standing in the platform shed. They're strung out in it. You know, there's, they got stubbles of beard and And it says he spits tobacco lazily. I don't know. I really like this description of them. Yeah. And I feel like they're almost described kind of like being thrill thrill seekers, especially like Jim Kidd, I think is characterized as a a thrill seeker. An example of this is when early in the story, when Jim Kidd is trying to test 
Paul Scallon. Paul Scallon has said to him, right, if you move, I'm going to shoot you. And Jim's going to test this. He's like, all right, are you really going to shoot me? Let's find out. Kid, once they reach the hotel room, this criminal Jim Kid looks at the windowsill and says, can I, can I open the window? And Paul Scallon says, well, yeah, if you can open it from where you're sat right now, you can, you can open the window. And then Jim Kidd said, all right, well, I can't do it. So Paul Scanlon goes to close the window. And the moment he turns his head, Jim Kidd leaps up onto his feet. And if Paul Scanlon is going to follow through with his original threat that he's going to shoot him on, you know, the, the moment he, he moves, but he doesn't follow up on this threat. So Jim Kidd is testing Paul Scanlon to see if he's really going to shoot him like he said he would. And... Scallon is very cautious during this whole process. So he's turning his gun around in his belt and he's like holding both of his guns, raising them. He's being very, very cautious. And Kid says to him, you don't take any chances, do you? Where's your sporting blood? And Paul Scallon replies, down in Bisbee with my wife and three youngsters. Scallon told him without smiling and moved around the table. So there's this opposition set up between Paul Scallon, the family man, and Jim Kidd, the thrill seeker. Hmm. And I think this is the, the dynamic of the interactions. The story is like a hyper-condensed, as we kind of stated, version of some of the other westerns that we've read. The only background information that we get from some of these characters is in a sentence or two. We get an idea of kids thrill-seeking. We don't get a whole bunch of background. Like sometimes I felt I was getting lost reading this, and it felt like a real genre challenge. Someone who has read a lot more westerns than me would be able to engage with this story much more immediately. It's like you've already got so many westerns under your belt, all you need is the very smallest bits of information and then you can live within this scene so that's an interesting idea you're saying that a story like this relies on the western tradition that came before it it, it almost makes it seem from what you're saying that the characters we're dealing with here are these kind of stock characters you have the family lawman versus the you know the wild outlaw and then you know mr tempe the the bank man is by and large presented as the kind of like stock city slicker, someone with no spine, someone who makes the wrong decisions for the sake of saving their hide. That's how I'm feeling about it. And I'm trying to think of a moment if there's anyone that changes in this story. We track that a mm. lot in the past stories. Who changes? Who does not? What does the character arc look like? There's not much character arc in this. It is just suspense. And like you said, stock characters. We, we just get what we need to get kind of in our mind's eye what these what these stock characters look like so they can have this right. final shootout. Well, I think there is a transformation that happens with Jimmy Kidd. At first, you know, he's mm. he's testing Scallon. He wants to know how much he can be bought for. He's asking him, oh, how much do you make in a month? You know, these kinds of questions. But then after Scallon beats Bob Moon with the, with the butt of his pistol and doesn't allow this guy to kill Jimmy Kidd, Paul Scallon looks at Kid on the bed. He's surprised that the Kid hasn't tried to make a break for it. He's surprised he hasn't tried to jump out and leap away during the scuffle. And he says to him, you might have made it that time. And Kid shakes his head and says, I wouldn't have made it off the bed. And there's, it says that there's this note of surprise in Jimmy Kid's voice as he says, you know, you're pretty good. So in that moment, Kid is starting to respect Scallon. But then at the very end of the book, after Scallon has successfully made it to the train, that's when Kid says, you know, you really earn your keep as a as a lawman. And I and I feel like what we're getting here is this, I don't know, like this moment of respect where respect is due. The lawman is so good that even the villain winds up respecting him. 
So the idea of respect reminds me of our conversation about true grit when we were trying to define what grit is. And we talked about amazing actions, being able to pull off incredible stunts, shooting someone from 600 yards away, riding the horse with both guns drawn and steering it with the reins in your mouth, incredible feats. So is this form of respect really a change? Is this a respect for the law or is it just a respect for ability? Like is kid really changing his character and thinking, maybe the law is interesting, Mm. maybe the law is good? Or is he just saying, damn, you're an impressive man? The way I understood it was more as like respect between fellow competitors, just like you would have a respect for a rival sportsman. Mm, yeah. Because, you know, Jim Kidd definitely sees this as a game. Like the quote I just mentioned, like, you know, where's your sporting blood? Mm. Like, where's your spirit? And Scallon at that time sort of blows my flow because it's with my family, you know, that I'm a family man, mm. all this stuff. But then at the end of the story, like, yeah, he tells him, you know, you really earn your, you really earn your money. But then the final paragraph is as follows. Scallon heard him though the iron rhythm of the train wheels and his breathing were loud in his temples. He felt as if all his strength had been sapped, but he couldn't help smiling at Jim Kidd. And I think that was a really interesting like note to, to end on. It's like these two guys, you know, have competed, they're both exhausted, and now they're just smiling at one another. You know, the game is over, you know, and both played the game well. I think, so I think there's a mutual respect for players of the game. That's how I understood it. Mm-hmm. At least in Jim Kedd's mentality, but I think Paul Scallon found the fun aspect of it almost as well. That's a really interesting point. And I do think that is what like Westerns are all about. You know, like kids play at Cowboys and Indians, you know, cops and robbers. These are kids' games, right? And these are adults playing out these these kids' games. Right? Is is it the kids playing out the adult games or is it the adults playing out the kid game, right? Like it's I think it's an interesting mm, comparison where, you know, these are clearly enjoying this game that kids do enjoy, right? It's a fun thing to do when seen in a certain light. You know, when we read The Shootist, we saw a man who's legendary for his handling a gun. And some people hate him, some people love him. He believes that he's doing the right thing and that every person he's killed deserved to die and that he was almost the chosen one to take those people off the earth. So he has this this legendary ability to handle this gun. But the boy who ends up taking over the gun, he's going to kill to make a name for himself. Mm like the other bad men who just wanted to spread their own popularity. You can't escape the gun, I felt like, for the shootist. He was born to be able to handle it. And so even if he wanted to do good in a different way, he's going to have to come back to this violence. And I wonder if something's going on similar for Scallon. Like, he is also legendary to be able to duke it out with these guys. Well, I think that if we're going to talk about a kind of legendary aspect of this, I would say that Scallon becomes legendary through the actions of this story. I wouldn't really call him a legendary type to begin with, especially you made reference to true grit before and what makes someone have true grit. If you think about the characters in that story, like you have the the one-eyed lawman, you have the the golden-spurred Texas ranger, the cowlick, and, and these are like stereotypes and they have their own legends built into him. But for, for Scallon, you know, he has a family. He's not particularly enthusiastic about his job. He has a low pay, <laughs> you know? So in this sense, I wouldn't really cast him as someone who's like this mythical Western figure. He seems to be sort of an everyman. And the amount of fear that he feels and the amount of, I don't know, just just plain mm. blanket terror seems actually much mm. more human 
than the than the other Western stereotypes that we're presented with in the other stories that we've read. I think for the most of this story, you know, he's not a man seeking a name and a reputation like books in The Shootist. Uh, he's just trying to get the job done. Well, books, books, he's not he's not looking for a reputation. He already has the reputation. Now he has to deal with it and figure out how he's going to leave the world and leave his reputation behind him. This guy, I, I was thinking, what do you think? How did you feel getting to the end of the story? Do you feel like Scallon is the everyman who's now been taken for a ride and is relieved at having the thrill of his life? Do we think that he's got the game born in him, or do we think that he's the everyman getting off a roller coaster? Or another option is, is he a man, is he a man that is just, who recognizes the call of duty, even if it's not glamorous duty, even if it's not well-paid duty? Hmm. I feel like he's the sort of man where if you, if he says he's going to do something, then by God, he's going to do it, but, right? Because he's given his word and he's, that's his duty. The smiling. How do you react to the smiling, though? He couldn't help smiling at Jim yeah. Is he? Is he? I agree that it's, he is a dutiful man, but is he smiling at his, oh, man, I've done my duty? Or is he smiling at something different? No, I think he's smiling at the thrill. You have to remember as well, these are two very young men. Like... The kid's in his early 20s, and Scallon's only a few years older. So these are two, like, guys in their mid-20s. Like, they're young guys. They're still ultimately finding themselves. You know, these aren't hardened old men. They're not, they're not you know, necessarily dutiful, like, middle-aged men either. You know, now I'm thinking about it. With them being young men, they're really just two kids, hmm. barely older than kids, just young men that have been given a job to do, and then they just, they just play their role, and they do it to the, to the utmost of their ability, and they put everything on the line. And at the end, it's like, yeah, they did both, in a sense, collaborate to make this event happen, you know? And I think, you know, Scallon is a young man, mid-20s, but he's got a wife and three kids. So, you know, I think that, you know, he's very dutiful. I think he's a good, you know, he's portrayed as a good man. Because I remember, like, we talked last week in Hondo by Louis L'Amour about the good man in the Western seems to be the man who will do his duty by the people who he cares for whether it's his family or his community or whatever. Hmm. The good person is someone who looks after them. So he is a good person in those terms. But I think, you know, being saddled with all this duty and responsibility as a fairly young man, I think it's, this is almost like a way for him to let loose. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a thrill. It like makes him feel younger, like makes him feel his youth. Yeah, I read that even as a, I can't believe we made it through that. And mm. even though you're the, you're my prisoner, we made it through this together not as a team but just as like this is an experience that you and i both share that is yeah you know remarkable you got that itch you want to scratch it sometimes you know everything every now and then you got to cut loose west world people want to go to the west to get their shootout that's funny shootout is as release i like that <laughs> i do think it's interesting especially in reference to hondo how you said how that you know the ideal western hero type they're the kind of person who lays down roots who who sets things up so that things are better for the following generation. And we can see Scallon in the process of doing this when he talks about, you know, working his his low-wage job, doing the law's will, and providing for his family. But look at the effects of Jimmy Kidd's, you know, very short life. He's already murdered someone, and he's done it in a in a fashion to where that person's family is not out to kill him. He's got banks who are trying to put him away. And I can't help but feel like even though he may have lived a, you know, like certainly remarkable and story-filled life, Jimmy Kidd's life is the opposite of someone who's trying to put down roots, the someone who's trying to grow something and, and make 
life better for following generations. He, he, I mean, he's just a classic antagonist in a Western, but he plays, he plays the type well. Once you've gone so far, it's, it reminds me of the line from Macbeth, I'm stepped in blood this far. You know, I've, I've gone so far now, I'm like up to my ears in blood, I might as well just keep going at this point until the end. There's no walking back. But it's quicker to walk to the end than it is to walk back. I'm already so like covered in blood. I've already committed so many crimes. I might as well just keep doing them. But the shootest, the shootest, he comes back. We open up the book. He kills someone. He was a pretty helpless old beggar, more or less, who just happened to have a gun. Kills him, lets him suffer out in the desert. That's the beginning of the book. And he tells us over and over again, I only kill the people who deserve to be killed. I kill people who need to be taken off the earth. But that we do not start out thinking of him that way. <laughs> so his arc changes, even though mm. he could have gone all the way. He's so covered in blood, he may as well keep wading into the blood. He does come out of it. Although he does kill more yeah. people at the end of the book. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess, I mean, I, I, in this case, I don't think the murder is necessary. It's just they were robbing a bank and this guy got caught in the crossfire. You know, when you were talking about the shootist, you were talking about him traveling through the desert, and you know, when he shoots that that random robber on the side of the road. And it got me thinking about how all of these Westerns that we've read, you know, Riders of the Purple Sage, Hondo, The Shootist, they all take place in the open wilderness. We get we get this sense of great distances being traveled, these pastoral settings, lots of nature, like really intricate and beautiful descriptions of the Western landscape. But this story takes place only within a single city. Do you feel like that affects this story or like what we should take away from this story? Does it does it feel like it's the same kind of Western to you guys? I feel like a lot of the setting description, for instance, quote, an iron bed was placed the long way against one wall and extended to the right side of the window and along the opposite wall was a dresser with wash basin. Feels like stage settings. Yeah, I guess so. I mean... I, I think we've we've already mentioned many of the similar themes to other westerns and the similar characters, and I would argue similar codes of moral values. So it definitely fits quite comfortably into the western genre. Do you think there was anything either in the characters or the setting that is an exception to this rule that actually was unconventional for the western, or that maybe breaks convention? I'll tell you one thing that I thought broke convention a little bit, but it, it will take a little bit of a, a little backtracking because Elmore Leonard, the author of this story, wrote Westerns only for a period of his career. And then he went on to write hard-boiled detective fiction. And of course, hard-boiled detective fiction takes place in a completely different world. It takes place in, you know, the dark, damp city, you know, also filled with these kind of anonymous negative low life characters who are out to do bad to innocent people and and also starring a protagonist who i suppose believes in the law or in the sense of upholds the law and maybe even stepping beyond the law upholding a higher sense of justice in in a similar way as this cowboy lawman type there's some descriptions in here of the streets of this western city that i thought somewhat broke with the convention of the cowboy novel here's one People would be in the windows and the doors, though you wouldn't see them. They'd have their own feelings, and most of their hearts would be pounding. And they'd edge back off the door frames a little more. The man out in the street was something without a human nature or a personality of its own. He was on a stage. The street was another world. And these kind of like 
somewhat poetic, somewhat cynical, slightly dark descriptions of this Western city, to me, felt like they had the seeds of hard-boiled fiction in them. It felt like it like it felt like this paragraph alone could have been copied and pasted from a my camera novel. Something else I loved about the prose was the ver- the very intricate description of like the way the characters' eyes moved. I noticed like there's one instance here when Mr. Timpy it's not yet been revealed in the story that he is he's going to betray them. But here when he's speaking to them he's he's very nervous. And it's very evident that he's nervous just in the way that he's speaking and how he's described. And it says here, like, uh, his eyes, Timpy's eyes, went to the outlaw, Jim Kidd, then back to Scallon hurriedly. And here it's like, he's kind of saying, well, it's not my responsibility to, to to keep this guy safe. Like, it's not fair. Like, am, I, am I being made a deputy marshal? All this stuff, like, he's really nervous. And it's almost like he's trying to apologize without letting them know that he's already done something wrong. He knows he's done something wrong. He's trying to defend himself already. And his eyes are like moving back and forth guiltily. So even before you find out that Mr. Timpy has done something that he shouldn't have done, which is tell this the, the, the man they murdered's brother that they were in this hotel, putting both of them, all of them at risk. But his eyes are telling yeah. the whole story. And there's another instance as well in which here, which I thought was a really moving kind of characterization of Kid, because it's quite clear from this story that Jim Kid has is quite intelligent and capable. There's a really interesting part here when Scallon tells Jim Kidd, you should have been a lawyer, Jim. And the smile began to fade from Kidd's face. Come on, what's it going to be? And then the door rattles, the room is silent, and the two men look at each other, and now the smile disappeared from Kidd's face completely. So they're, you know, the, the way the, the description of the eyes, the mouth, just tells so much of a story about what's going on inside these characters. You know, I, I read a moment of regret in Kid when he stops smiling, when he says, you should have been a lawyer. He's like, yeah, maybe I should have been. Maybe I could have been, right? And then the smile disappears completely yeah. when his confidence drains, right? So it's like the descriptions of the way the characters act or even just subtle things like the way the eyes move, the, you know, the way the mouth moves tells us so much about what's going on inside these characters. I thought that was really cool the way the pros managed to do that. I, I do disagree with how you characterize Tempe, though, as betraying them, because I don't know if I would quite call it a betrayal because a, tr- a betrayal seems to have intention behind it. Like you would think of some kind of malice being behind a betrayal. But if you look at this interaction between Scallon and Tempe, this is after mm. Bob Moon has been incapacitated. Scallon got mm. to his feet, looking at Tempe. What the hell's wrong with you? I couldn't help it. He forced me. How did he know we were here? He came in this morning talking about Dick, and I felt he needed some cheering up. So I told him Jim Kidd had been tried and was being taken to Yuma and was here in town. On his way. Bob didn't say anything and went out, and a little later he came back with a gun. You damn fool. Scallon shook his head wearily. And I, I feel like Scallon's condemnation of him as being a fool, this this action happened because of Tempe's ignorance. I think I think I tend to agree with Scallon's assessment of it, rather than him being some kind of oh, I don't know, malicious banker type who, you know, wanted Jimmy Kidd to be hurt by vigilante justice instead of being tried by the law, or some other motivation that he could have had. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think betrayal is a strong word on my part. All I mean is he'd given his word to Scallon that he wouldn't tell anyone they were there. And then what does he do? Tell someone they were there. So if that's not betrayal, what is it? What's, what's the word for that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It, it is uh, like if there's if we were to ask 
what is the weakness of Mr. Tempe? It seems like being too empathetic is the weakness. He sees a mourning person and he tries to comfort that mourning person. He's too much of a wimp. Exactly. And that's... So, fucking empathetic. So, <laughs> so there's a sense in which we get... That's like, a polite way. That's, a polite, that's like a polite way of saying someone's a wimp. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a Western novel. And like, these are... Like, if we're looking at what are the values of the Western novel that Elmore Leonard is really upholding and, and, and the tradition that he's perpetuating, none of our, like, lonesome cowboy justice hero types... I would I would call none of them empathetic or merciful. And in this sense, when we get a character who is empathetic and who does try to comfort someone, it ends up ruining the party for everyone. So just just worth pointing out. I I don't see it as empathy. I think empathy is is uh I think it's degrading the term empathy to apply empathy to Timpy. He's just a dweeb. <laughs> Like this guy comes in, whoever he's speaking to, he's gonna try and say whatever they wanna hear. But then the moment they turn their back, then he's going to tell the next person whatever they want to hear. He's just a he's just a coward, as far as I can see. He's weak and impish. Well, that reminds me of the way we characterized all of the the so called like modern people and and the shootist. All these people who were part of the new world, you know, the recently industrialized United States world, who are all trying to take advantage of other people and just kind of like speaking words that have no emotional weight behind them. So that characterization of Tempe, I think falls in with with kind of the shootist worldview. So leaving aside the length of the story, what separates it from the other Western novels that we've read? I mean, this one, by virtue of its, you know, publication magazine, it it advertises itself as a dime Western. So what makes the dime Western, I guess I'm wondering? How is this different? Well, one thing that might be similar is we talked about how there's a thrill in getting getting your 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 let off and pretending to go be a cowboy, doing the cowboy thing. Like John, you said, is it kids are doing the adult job or adults doing the kid job? It's fun to play cowboys. Was there nostalgia in True Grit? It's Maddie looking back on her life and these men who were characterized as being the toughest cowboys eventually become carnival sideshows becoming what we think of when we think of cowboys but performing it Mm, perhaps i'm not sure if i see the element of nostalgia in this book i would argue that's something that separates it from the other ones because this we're so steeped in the present moment in this book it's almost like there's no future and no past there's just right now we're just plunged like right into the middle of the action we're put we're taken straight to the climax of the story and then we finish once the climax is over it's that's really what the story is. To me, it's very much immersed in the present moment. And there's no room for, you know, thinking about the future or even thinking about the the past. Because I think when they're on the train, there's this, like, sense where, all right, now I'm sure this guy, Jim Kidd, is going to be reflecting on the time that he's going to spend in jail. Whereas previously, he'd not been thinking about it because he's still in the moment thinking, I could get away with this. I could get out of this. Once they're in the train... I think that's when they would start thinking about the future or think looking back nostalgically. Uh, but that's where the story ends. It might be worth pointing out that this story was written decades earlier than some of the other books that we've read. So in that sense, these other books like, you know, like True Grit or, or Shootist, by virtue of being a late genre edition, they have the luxury of looking back upon the entire genre of Westerns and being able to be reflective or being able to be nostalgic or being able to play with the tropes a little bit. But I have to wonder if this is maybe something something more of an earlier edition, or at least this is still in the thick of, you know, the 
the evolution of the Western genre. So in that sense, maybe nostalgia isn't so much of a component and playing with the tropes isn't so much of a concern with this. Maybe this is more interested in perpetuating the tradition that is already well underway. Yeah, I think when you boil it down, it's really just an exciting 15, 20 minute read. It just, it just If you've got 15 minutes to spare and you're looking for a bit of entertainment, you can read the story and you know, you're guaranteed to be you know, sucked into the moment and you know, feel the suspense. Hmm. And then I think the payoff itself is quite satisfying and quite uh, reasonably exciting as a final gunfight and then at the end you get the the conclusion both men smiling and exhausted right and then story over so i think it really it it, it's a it's a case of it does what it says on the tin that's fine they've shot all their ammo they're both exhausted they're both sweating and smiling you just get to feel like a feel like a gunman and what a gun he had feel like an outlaw for, for 15 minutes of your life if you're lucky. You know. Should we wrap it up? Oh, we better, we better wrap it up if we're talking about <laughs> And with the end of 310 to Yuma by Elmore Leonard, we are concluding our month of the Westerns. And next month we're going on to Arthurian romances. We are starting Arthurian romances with Sir Gawain and the Green Knight by the Gawain Poet. And it's translated by J.R.R. Tolkien. Follow us on Spotify. Leave us a review on iTunes. And we'll see you next week for Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Talk to you later, Jonathan. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob.